told you last week that I was dressed the way I like to dress, and I told you this week I would dress like one of you specifically. So I don't have my cowboy boots on, but who do I look like this morning? Bob Comstock. Whoops, going to break this thing up. So that was my goal, was to look like Bob and be like Bob. Amen. So there's one thing, there's two things that I lack. Number one, it's uh, the good old cowboy boots. Number two, I tried to get my sideburns going a little bit this week, and it just didn't have enough time to let that happen. So maybe in a future date. I also think Bob needs a belt buckle like this right here. He's got those fancy cowboy belt buckles, but a perhaps today belt buckle, that would do you good. <laughs> Father's Day is coming up, Mark. <laughs> you don't like that belt buckle? Neil, Father's Day is coming up. <laughs> I take it you guys don't like my belt buckle. It's the best belt buckle in the world. I love this thing. <laughs> okay, let's open up to Luke 22. Roll Tide, Luke 22. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing the next few weeks. I talked a little bit with Andrew. He's going to be preaching on the 11th. It's been a little weird going through Luke that we, you know, we moved all the way around. But, you know, once you get to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and you go through Easter and then you come back to Luke and you're going through all these things again, it can feel a little bit clunky. These are great passages. It just seems to be out of whack with our calendar as far as that goes. But what we decided to do, since we've already done Luke 24, we've got Luke 22 and Luke 23 left. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to work our way through these two chapters, and then we'll be done with Luke on June 4th, which is a little ahead of our schedule. And then Andrew will come in on the 11th and preach, and then depending on what happens with his candidacy, he's going to be gone for a couple of weeks, so I have a few open weeks. So that gives Andrew the freedom to preach whatever he wants to preach, and then those two weeks after for whoever is preaching on those weeks to have the freedom to do whatever they want to do as well. Then, when we get summer here, the focus is going to be the Old Testament, especially character studies. And so there's different individuals throughout the Old Testament that are going to be doing character studies on them. So that's what you have to look forward to. I'm not certain what's happening in the fall. But, so we're going to finish up Luke 22 and 23 in the next couple of weeks. And Luke 22 is really long. I'm actually going to read that this morning, though. And then I'm going to read 23 next week. Um, I just want to try to set some kind of context for what I'm going to be doing with these two passages. Rather than go verse by verse, what I've decided to do is just step back, see big picture of what's going on in Jesus's life in this time. And I've pulled out, I think, eight principles that we want to look at. As we look at Jesus's life, we look at his relationship with the disciples, we think about our own life in this world. What are some things that we can learn as we go through these couple of chapters. So that's going to be our focus. So let me pray and ask God to help us in this time. Lord, we do need you. As we were just singing, all I am, I surrender. We were just singing, give me faith to trust what you say. And Lord, we all need that. We come in this room this morning and no doubt we've battled with various things in life throughout this week, things that didn't make sense to us, things that made us angry, things that frustrated us as we tried to overcome temptations in our lives and, Lord, the, the, the battles and relationships that we might have, the unknown future. Lord, we have all these things. And we open up your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us the things that we need to learn. Lord, we need your help so much. So would you make your word alive and powerful today? Would you cause these words to leap off these pages right into our hearts and transform the way that we live? We want to give this time to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 22. No doubt some of you feel discouraged in life. I'm just assuming. 
I don't want to project that on anyone, but no doubt some of you feel discouraged in life. Perhaps you've been battling sin, and maybe that's not a little time, that's a long time in your life, and as you continue to battle that, you feel like there's no way out. You feel powerless, you feel defeated, you, under, you, you wonder where the power of the gospel is in this particular area of your life, and you commit yourself, and then you find yourself falling and struggling again, maybe the next day, maybe two days. It doesn't really matter, does it? You know what you're up against, and you feel like it controls you. Perhaps you've been hurt deeply by others in the body of Christ, and you're trying to rise above it. You're trying to to live a, a life that's honoring the Jesus, but the bitterness that runs deep in your heart continues to surface itself, and you've prayed, you've even begged God to let you have a different attitude towards certain people. But there's too many things that happen and it plucks away at that ugly scab and it begins to ooze and fester once again. And you're begging God to do something. Perhaps you know what it's like to be distracted in life and even living for the wrong things and you know it. And you want to turn that corner. You want to begin to live differently, but you feel stuck in that. Maybe you even find yourself preferring that new distracted life. It's fulfilling for you in some ways. And you, and you even feel yourself hardening toward the way you know you should live. And you want to recommit yourself to this. But you find yourself continuing to live for earthly things rather than heavenly things. Perhaps you're even in some kind of leadership role in the church or at least in the Christian community. So in one sense... Jesus is everything to you, but in another sense, you know that you're not drinking deeply of Jesus. You know you're going on spiritual fumes. You aren't diving into God's word. You aren't committing yourself to prayer. Prayer gets lost in the details of the day, and you know you're ministering in the flesh, yet it's the practice of your life. Perhaps you, and I just put a blank there. Maybe you could fill in your own blank with your own story, your own struggle to be faithful in your life. As we come to these last days of Jesus' life and we look at what's going on around him, we look into this story, we look into the lives of God-focused people. I mean, these are the disciples. Jesus spent three years with them. We're going to find that we're not alone in our struggles They struggled too. They were up against things. And I want you to know you're not alone in this room either. You're surrounded by people who have their own story, their own things that they struggle with. But whatever the battle might be, we must find a way to put our eyes on Jesus. We must find a way, as we've been using as our little words that have guided us through this book, to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. We've got to find a way to do that. So let's look at Luke 22. I'm going to read all this. I think it's 70 verses. 71. So I'm going to set the record for the scripture reading on Sunday morning. But I wanted to set a context for us because I'm going to lift some things out of this. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will drink of the fruit of the vine. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as as that has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And when they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and leaders, the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me to my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, whenever I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his his ear and, and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. 
And he went out and wept bitterly. And the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. And I hate to stop the story right there. But we're going to pick that up next week. But I'm going to step back from both chapters And I'm going to pull out bits and pieces in what I call principles. Now, what's going to happen in chapter 23 is just the chapter headings in my Bible are, or the section headings, Jesus goes before Pilate, then they're going to take him to Herod, then he's going to come back to Pilate, and Pilate's going to deliver Jesus to be crucified, then we're going to actually have the crucifixion itself, the death of Jesus, where he says, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, and then Jesus is buried, And then on Resurrection Day, we already looked at chapter 24, where we see the resurrection. But there's a lot going on in this story that I began to become intrigued by certain principles that I was pulling out of here. Now, let me begin with this particular thought, though, before I actually get into the principles. It might be easy for us to want to erase certain verses in these chapters you ever think about what that would be like to have a bible where you could just pull your eraser out and say i don't like that and just take that out and so here jesus is coming to the end of his life and and we might prefer the more happy moments i mean he's king of kings and lord of lords this is god who became man he's lived a sinful sinless life and now he's about to go to the cross be crucified they're blindfolding him mocking him beating him Wouldn't it be nice if we could just erase that out and make it a really happy and they all lived happily ever after story? We can't do that. We can't start with verse 1. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. For Well, let me forget verse 2. Verse 1, now the feast of the unleavened bread which drew near, which was called Passover, and then skip down to verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. I mean, we can't just skip around like that. If we did that, we would miss some very important parts of the story. Number one, we would miss what I would call the non-Jesus follower responses. Think about this. The hatred of the religious leaders is a part of this story. Verse two, the chief priests, scribes, were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. So they connived this plan. They meet him in the garden secretly. They bring him before Pilate and Herod and they eventually get their way by moving the crowd in anger toward Jesus. There's so many parts of these two chapters where we see these non-followers of Jesus and their anger, their hatred, But we would also miss verses 3 through 6, where we have the apparent disciple. This is one that Jesus called, Judas, to be one of the 12. But now we find out he's not truly a follower of Jesus. And so we see how that story unfolds. We would miss that. We would also miss the followers of Jesus in their responses. Because if we're going to have, and they all lived happily ever after, we're going to take away that scene in chapter 22, verses 21 to 24. I mean, I don't, I prefer not to have that. Jesus says to them um, in chapter 22, he's talking about um, the, 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 the new covenant that's coming about. And then he says in verse 21, behold, the hand of one who betrays me is on the table. And so they're all looking around. Maybe all their hands were on the table at that point. I don't know what it was. But verse 23, and they began to discuss amongst one another who it was going to be, who was going to do this. Who do you think? Is it you? No, it's not me. I'm not going to do this. And that leads to a discussion about who's the greatest. (laughs) It wouldn't be me. Why? You know what? I think Jesus sees me as his number one disciple. 
It's not me, surely. It's one of you lesser people. I mean, we would want to move that out of the story. That's not the way Jesus' disciples are supposed to be acting at this point. We would, we would erase probably the scene with Peter where he denies that he knows Jesus. And Jesus tells him in verse 31 that, Peter, you're going to deny me. And then we see that actually happen in verses 54 and following. We might want to take that out. I mean, what an awful way to end the story. We want his disciples to be loyal to the very end. In fact, Mark, in his account, Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. Every one of you. This unfaithfulness at the end. We might want to move those things out of the story. But rather than ruin the story, these are the things that actually give this story meaning. These are the things that are so important for us to understand because by having all of these items in the story, it reminds us why, why Jesus is going to the cross, why God became man and walked the face of this earth, living a sinless life, and now he's freely given himself over to religious leaders who hate him. We're reminded about why Jesus is doing all of this. It gives us the clear significance as to why this story is here. So if we were to erase those parts of the story out of the story, we actually wouldn't have a story at all. So they become an important part of it. And when we look at the the messier parts of this story, we need to remind ourselves we're part of that mess. If we were one of the disciples, if we were there at this time, we ourselves would be a part of this mess because We also are the reason why this story unfolds the way it does and why Jesus ends up on the cross. Our lives, too, give what Jesus does here meaning. And so we're going to take all the verses that are there, and I want to pull out some principles for us. So this morning we're going to do three of them, and then next week we're going to pick up with the final ones that I want to pull out. Here's principle number one. What Jesus announces beforehand comes to pass. What Jesus announces beforehand comes to pass. So his word is faithful and true and can be trusted. Do you follow me on this? What Jesus announces beforehand actually happens. Therefore, what he says is faithful and true and can be trusted. In chapter 18, we're going to go back just a little bit here. In chapter 18, in verses 31 to 33, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogging, kill him, third day rise. What happens in these chapters is exactly that. You can begin reading in chapter 22, verse 54, all the way through the end of chapter 23, and that's exactly what happens. You can even add chapter 24, the resurrection. Jesus said it beforehand, and it actually came to pass. Chapter 22, in verses 10 through 12, Chapter 22, verse 10 through 12, he says to them, I want you to go prepare this Passover meal for us. Enter this city. You'll see a man carrying a jar of water. Meet him, follow him to the house. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat of the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room. Prepare it there. Jesus announces it beforehand, verse 13. And they went and found it just as he had told them and prepared the Passover. Jesus announces it ahead of time and it comes to pass. Chapter 22, verse 21. Again, this this scene with the one who's going to betray him. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. One of the 12, it's going to be one of them. And then in chapter 22, when you get to verses 47 and following, Judas comes up and actually betrays Jesus right there. What Jesus announced beforehand comes to pass. Chapter 22 in verse 34. Actually, you could begin in verse 31, but it culminates in verse 44. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Then in verses 54 to 61, what Jesus announced ahead of time comes to pass. If we're not careful, hearing that can become background noise. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wah, 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 wah. Jesus said it. It's going to happen. And we forget this actually means something for our lives. We've got to hold on to this truth. If Jesus announces it ahead of time, it will come to pass. What Jesus announces, we can hold on to, we we can believe, we can find this is true. We can live our lives underneath this, underneath his rule and reign. Notice what Jesus clearly announces here to the disciples. I think words that should just echo on for us. Chapter 22, verse 16. He says to the disciples as they're eating this Passover, I tell you, I will not eat it. In some translations, again, that's the idea here. I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says it later on in verse um, 18 as well. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus announces that ahead of time. And he says this is going to come to pass. And it will. And so it echoes through. There's going to be a day when we, when we eat and drink with Jesus. That day is going to happen. We can hold on to that in the midst of life. But what are some other promises that might come to your mind? Jesus said it. He announces it ahead of time. It will come to pass. We can cling to it. We can claim it. What does Jesus say about being a follower of him? Anybody just shout them out. Promises of Jesus that you can just bank on. I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. I'm not going to go on vacation. I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to be with you. What else? The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to live in you. Even given the disciples very specific things, in that time of testing, he will tell you what to say. You trust him. I mean, those promises. What else? He'll come again. He's going to come back. He's told the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do, and I am, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to bring you unto myself. You see, we can go on and on. Cast your care upon him. Why? He cares for you. His grace is sufficient for you. It is. See, we see in this story, when we just step back, we say, when Jesus announces something, when he declares something, when he makes a promise, it is something that we can cling to. And so in our life, we need to cling to these things. We can rest. We don't have to be anxious about things that are happening in our lives because we know he is on his throne and these things are not slipping through his fingers. He hasn't lost control. We can know that we can cast our care on him and he'll give us a peace that passes all understanding. These are things that he promises us. And so we continue to go to the one who can offer us life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so as you cling to Jesus, guess, guess what you have? Access to the Father. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. So what Jesus announces ahead of time, it comes to pass. His word is faithful. And so cling to those promises. Maybe you want to go home and you want to just open up your Bible and start writing out promises and claims of Jesus. And then you want to just cling to those in your life. I wish we had time to do that here, but I want to go to principle number two. Not only what Jesus announces beforehand comes to pass, but here's principle number two. Jesus is in complete control of all that is taking place throughout this story. Jesus is in complete control of everything that is taking place in this story. When you think about the battle between Jesus and Satan going all the way back to the garden. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. As you're watching this unfold in the Bible, it may appear to you that the serpent is getting the upper hand. But Jesus is in complete control of everything that's going on in the story. Remember back in early part of chapter 22, verses 7 and following. Jesus says, we're going to have the Passover together. I earnestly desire this. Now, I want you to go. And this is how you're going to find all the details. Jesus is in control of all of this. He's moving everything forward. He doesn't have to call anybody. He doesn't go do any details. It's set. It's done. He has knowledge of his betrayer. Judas is behind the scenes conniving all this stuff. Jesus knows what's going on. He's in absolute control. Notice what it says even 
in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 22, it says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined. As it has been determined. This is God ordained, but it's also a human activity. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Jesus is in complete control of all of this. Nothing is a surprise to him. Nothing is catching him off guard. You can see him in the garden of Gethsemane pouring out his heart. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Jesus knows exactly what that will is. That's why he's praying in such agony where his sweat becomes like drops of blood. It's because he knows exactly what's going to be taking place. He can be mocked. He can be pushed around. He can be falsely accused. People can blindfold him and say, if you're Christ, the son of the living God, tell us who it was who hit you. And Jesus can remain silent. He could nail every one of them. It was you. In fact, it was a weak hit. Jesus could have said whatever he wanted to at that point in time. This is all in his complete control. I want us to go to the Gospel of John real quick to see how clear this is. In John 19, John 19, John, the Gospel, really focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. So we get so many more details. But in John 19, look at verse 9. John 19, verse 9, he entered his headquarters again, this time about Pilate, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you think that you're in control of this situation. You think it's in your power to deliver or to crucify. You think that, Pilate, but you have nothing unless it's been given to you. Notice even in verse 31. Peter's going to go through, obviously, a very difficult time. Verse 31 of chapter 22, Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What kind of movement in this world can Satan have? What kind of power and authority can Satan have in this world? Only what's been given to him. Jesus is in absolute control of what's going on. This past week, many of you, some of you may have heard in Egypt about our brothers and sisters in Christ who were gunned down. They're on a bus. They're on their way for a time of prayer and just maliciously an act of Islamic terrorism, they just sprayed the bus with bullets, killing, 25 and, tw- killing 28 and wounding 25. And we might step back from those kind of things and, and just wonder, is God really in control of these things? I love what A.W. Tozer say, says in his book. He says, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he says, there's not one modicum of power Nothing that's out of Jesus's power and authority or God's power and authority. Because if it were not all his, then he would not be all powerful. It's all his. How do we step back from life and look at the things that can happen to people and trust that God is in control? Jesus is in complete control of everything that's going on here. But his prayer was, your will be done. And that's the way we have to look at our life as well. It's his will be done. And so as we engage life, whatever it is that each one of you are going through and the battles that you face, we have to look at them. We have to embrace them. We have to engage them. We have to walk into them. We have to walk through them with knowledge that Jesus is on his throne. He's accomplishing his will in this world and we can trust him 
We can trust him that whatever it is that he's doing is good. I mean, think about whatever it is that you're up against right now in your life. It may not make sense to you. It may seem totally unfair that God would allow that. But God is at work. He's moving. He's accomplishing things. It's his will that's being done. There's no power over you except Jesus. Even that sin that may plague you, it doesn't have power over you. Your Lord and Savior Jesus does. All authority is under his rule and reign. When you read the history of the Old Testament and, you know, Babylon gets raised up and they're taunting Israel, God steps back and says, you know what, I'm the one that raised them up and I can take them down. All nations are like a drop in a bucket to me. So we watch what's going on in our world and all the corruption of government. It's God who raises up and God will take down. We watch what's happening with our government. God raises up and God will take down. We watch powers over you in your life. God raises up and God will take down. We can trust him in the midst of all of this. This is phenomenal when we think about our lives. Maybe your life's not working out the way you want it to work out. But you got to step back and realize God is accomplishing his purposes. And you need to jump on board and follow him with your whole heart. The third principle that I want to end with this morning is not only are we sinners, okay, we've stated that we actually give this story meaning ourselves. Not only are we sinners, but we all struggle with what it means to follow Jesus. We, We all struggle with what it means to follow Jesus, with what it means to be a member of his kingdom. Everyone here struggles with that. You're not alone in that struggle. No one's figured it out. No one's arrived. No one's at full maturity yet. We're all struggling with that. And in this particular story, we're looking at people who are near Jesus, near in proximity. And I want us to realize, first of all, that some claim to be children of the kingdom, but they're not. They're in the the world, the religious world. They're, They're there, they're around Jesus, but they're not part of the kingdom. The religious leaders are an example. They think they're the leaders that are going to make the charge to the kingdom. The religious leader that sat back from the table and said, how good it is to be in the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to say, you know what? Let me tell you a story. You're not. But they're close by. They're in that category. And throughout Luke, the gospels, it's been very clear that those who are religious leaders, they're around all the religious stuff. They've got the Torah in their hands. They touch it. They read it. But they're missing out on the kingdom They're missing out on the family of God in the context today. We see Judas, who's one of the 12. He's missing out on the kingdom. And his self-deception is found in Matthew's gospel, where when Jesus says the hand of one is on the table and Judas says, surely not I. His deception runs deep. And Judas is in that close proximity to Christ, but he's on the outside Remember the parable of the sower, the soils, the seed drops and the birds snatch it away. That's Satan snatching away. But, but then it gets down some in the rocky soil, some in the thorny soil. And the cares of this world and riches and pleasures can choke it out. Some who got close proximity, but in the end, they're not a part of the kingdom. Here we see what it looks like to be this kind of person. It's possible to fit into the mold for a while. Like Judas, he followed Jesus, but in the end, he's not one of them. I was at a church once where there was a, there was a call extended to join the pastoral staff, and the leader of the church, of the search committee, it turned out was not even a believer. And so, just little by little, I got to get together with some of the men and would meet him at their workplace and talk with him about what's going on. And, and I found out this guy wasn't even a believer. He was, head of, he was chairman of the missions committee, chairman of the search committee, one of the leaders within the church, and he wasn't even a believer. Very close in proximity, right in the center of things, even in a leadership position, but not a follower of Jesus. 
And so we step back from this and we look at this and we say, okay, well, all of us, we're here. We're in close proximity to the church. Perhaps you own a Bible. You've got it. Maybe you've memorized some verses. But are you a true disciple? When we step back from the store, we have to ask that question. You can actually be in the flow of things within the church and not actually be a follower of Jesus. You can be a part of the religious structures and not be a part of Jesus. Do we fully understand the gospel? Oftentimes what I ask people is, if you were to die right now, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? This comes from evangelism explosion, which I think this church has taught. Why should I let you? God said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? A person's answer to that is very telling about what they understand about what the Bible says and about what the gospel is. I have students in my office on a regular basis, and eventually we get to spiritual things And through the years, I've had a number of students who had no clue how to answer that question. And I even have students who I think are probably Christians who have a hard time answering that question. It's not a trick question. It's a question that gets at the core of what you believe about God, sin, and salvation. If you were to die right now and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I was playing basketball with a guy in a gym once who for 30 minutes went on and told me the answer to his question without ever mentioning the name Jesus. What would you say to that question? If you could just all write it down right now, it would be a good exercise. If we had three by five cards, you could all write down your answer because then we could compare what is it that you They didn't get what God was all about. And that was the danger for them. They thought they were in. But whatever their question was, they didn't get the answer. They just didn't get it. It's not about having the right answer. It's about, do you understand the gospel? And I would encourage all of you, if your answer was different than Jesus, dead, buried, rose again on your behalf, You put your faith in that. You put your faith in that and that alone. There's no room for, I've lived a good life. That needs to be taken out. There's no place for that in the gospel. And if your answer to that question is not something close to what I said, I encourage you to sit and talk with someone and say, listen, my answer wasn't close to what he said. I need some help. I want to make sure I fully understand the gospel because you can be close to Jesus but not be in the kingdom. But let me give a second part to this. Some claim to be children of the kingdom, but they're not. But I want you to also realize even true disciples struggle with remaining faithful and following Jesus. Even true disciples. And that's where we began our time today. As you come in here, we've all got a story. We're all in some kind of struggle. Even true disciples struggle with remaining faithful and following Jesus. Peter... He's going to become a pillar of the church. When you get to the book of Acts, and Luke is writing the gospel of Luke with Acts as the companion volume, he knows how this turns out for Peter. He wants us to see the struggles that Peter's having in his life, but Peter becomes a pillar in that first church. But he denies three times that he knows Jesus. In the moment... 
in verses 54 to 60. In the moment, it seems the most reasonable thing to say. You're one of them, aren't you? No, I'm not. You're one, aren't you? No, I'm not. You're one. No, I'm not. And how quick in life we can not give evidence that we belong to Jesus. We all know what this is like. And we also all know what it's like when the Lord turns to, and looks at Peter. And Peter remembers the saying. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. We all know what that kind of struggle is in our life. Even true disciples struggle with remaining faithful in following Jesus. But I love Jesus' promise that he's already given to them in verse 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. And then he gets, when he gets down to verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table, my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here they are in all of their mess. And Jesus says, remember what Jesus proclaims beforehand comes to pass. He says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to bring this about. So no sin, no struggle in your life puts you beyond the ability of God to use you. The greatest king of all time in the history of Israel, King David, committed two sins worthy of the death penalty. And yet he's known as the greatest king. Maybe Solomon. I like King David. The greatest king throughout all of Israel's history. No sin puts you beyond the Lord using you. But we've got to turn away from that. In the same way David did, he acknowledged that sin. He humbled himself before the Lord and turned back to the Lord. And that's what we have to do. We have to continue to turn to the Lord. We have to continue to seek Him. We have to continue to ask forgiveness. We continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that He can have His way with us. But even true followers of Jesus struggle. These are Jesus' prime candidates, and they're all going to fall away. He's invested three years of his life in them, and they're going to fall away. God wants to use them, and God wants to use all of you as well. He wants you to be a true follower of him. You've got to get the gospel right. And then in the midst of your struggle, he wants you to continue to find him and seek him. Seek him and find him is what I should say. Seek him and find him and find the forgiveness that comes from him. So even as we struggle today, we're not alone. Look at the story. Followers of Jesus struggle. And you're not even alone in this room, even this morning. Perhaps you sense in your own heart that you could use prayer in being faithful. You want to be more faithful to Lord. You know these things have distracted you or bitterness has got a hold of you or sin is plaguing you. You know what these things are. You're dry in your spiritual life. You just need some help. Perhaps you identify with even a character in this story. Denying three times, you know, the Lord. Betraying Jesus. Hating Jesus. Whatever it might be. Maybe you created your own group in your mind at the beginning of the sermon. One that you better identified with. I don't want us to be afraid of struggles in our lives. Here's how I want to end this time today. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're saying, yes, I want to be more faithful. There's an area of my life that I want to see changed. I don't want to be distracted anymore. I want to battle this sin. I don't want to be on the sidelines. Whatever it is, my heart is hard and bitterness is there. I don't want that anymore. And maybe you'd like someone to pray for you this morning. I want you to know you're not alone. And so if you're in that place right now, you just want someone to pray for you, I'm just going to invite you to stand because we're just going to spend some time in prayer. That's how we're going to end our time today. But if you're saying, I really, I want to be more faithful in following Jesus, just stand up right now. Just stand up. We're going to gather around you. We're going to lay hands on you. You just want prayer for what the Lord can do in your life. Okay, you can see who they are. Let's all gather around people in this room and let's just spend a moment in prayer.
that God would grant faithfulness. You don't have to know details. Just pray for faithfulness. Gather around the people you see standing and pray. Pray with the person next to you if you aren't gathered around someone who's standing. Let's pray. Let's hear prayers all over the room. Let's just pray. Lift them up. Pray out loud. Let's lift up prayers. Pray for faithfulness. So, Lord, we do pray that you would help each one of us. You know exactly where we are in life. You know the healing that we need. You know the perspective that we need. You know the salvation that we need. You know the strength that we need. You, need, you know the hope that we need. Lord, we bring all of that to you, and we pray that you would help us. We thank you that our lives give meaning to this story. That you came, you gave yourself a life, your life as a ransom for each one of us. And that you're continuing to do a work in us. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray for strength to carry on. That we might fulfill your mission in this world to your glory, to your honor, to your praise, and for our joy. So Lord, we lift up all of our lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.